0: had a chance to meet. Uh, I would love to meet you. Uh, I get a, the privilege of working here with Salt Company. I'm also on staff with the community side here at Doxa Church. Uh, I do some stuff with the local missions team, the men's ministry. Uh, speaking of the men's ministry, I have an announcement for you guys. Can I talk to the men in the room for a second? Where the fellas at? Where the fellas at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, um, so you guys you guys have heard, um, if you've been coming to Doxa on Sundays. Next week, we're going to be having a Docs of Men conference, okay? This is a formal invitation for you to come out and come to the Docs Men conference. Uh, we usually have like a Docs of Men breakfast every other month. And I know some of you colleges have been coming out to this Docs of Men's breakfast, and this conference is going to be kind of like that, but just on a bigger scale, a two-day event, Okay. It's a really cool opportunity for you to come out. You'll get to meet with some of the men around the community side of Doxa. get plugged in. Uh, Phenomenal time to get some kind of encouragement, right? Get some mentorship, maybe exchange numbers, get to know somebody you can build a relationship outside of uh, this college world. Um, We're gonna be outside at the table right here. I have a computer and if you haven't signed up and you wanna get signed up, uh, you can meet me out there right after tonight, okay? Uh, Here's also a thing. We have a couple scholarships for Salt Company students. So if you want to come, the price is $25. You can pay that. But if you want to come and can't pay that $25, just come and see me, uh, and we can get you guys in there. Sound good? All right. So we're going we're gonna to jump right in, man. So we're going to be continuing our series in the book of James. Uh, we're going to be in James chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and meet me there. Um, and I'm going to be coming in a couple of verses into the text, starting in verse four. Last week, Rudy finished up the end of chapter three and brought us into chapter four as well. and he took us into those first couple of verses, and so I'm pretty much just going to be picking up where he left off. And as you get in there, I kind of want to remind you guys of something. I want to remind you guys why James is writing this book. See, he's writing to a group of Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire and he's addressing some pretty heavy concerns as we've seen throughout the weeks. And basically he's saying this, he's saying who you say you are and what you believe isn't matching up to what you're doing. He's saying there's something wrong because your faith doesn't match your life. See, up to this point, he's scratching his head, right? Like like you, you say you believe, in Christ and yet you're showing partiality he's saying you believe in Christ and yet there's no real evidence in your life he's saying you believe in Christ but you have untamed tongues you believe in Christ but you're not acting in godly wisdom so this is what James has been saying thus far when I was young I used to love kung fu movies any kung fu fans in the building Love kung fu movies, man, I like, I, I to really get into it, just to really enjoy the classics, right, like uh, Revenge of the Dragon, right, The Ring of Death. Um, and those of y'all who know, like, there, there's this one film called The Last Dragon, I don't know if you know about that one, right? <laughs> the mid-80s came out, I was really into it, like, if you like hip-hop and you like kung fu at the same time, it's like a, a phenomenal match <laughs> between the two, right, if you can imagine that. But if you've ever seen an authentic Kung Fu movie, there's something that you recognize like right away, right? They're not in English and they're dubbed over, right? And you're looking at this movie and and, and like it's you're kind of taken aback but you're intrigued by the action but there's something you recognize when they begin to speak the words aren't adding up you know how it goes right they do a move they say hi you come pal where you going mouth still moving right get over here <laughs> right it's like yo I'm, I really want to continue watching this I, I like what I see but like It's hard to watch because your words aren't really matching up with the movement. And if we think about it, it's a pretty long jump. But this is kind of the accusation that James is having against these people, isn't it? Like if I can put it this way, their audio really isn't matching up with their video. They're saying one thing, but their actions are doing a completely different thing. And this has been this penetrating theme in James. And in our text tonight, he's gonna address this in a way that got the attention of the hearers at the time and should catch our attention here tonight. And that should have been enough time for y'all to get there to James chapter four. I'm gonna pick up right here in verse four. And here's what it says. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Okay, if you're not like offended at all, like you should probably head out the door <laughs> after listening to that. Right, James opens up this text with some really strong language. And he starts this with, with you adulterous people. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not language that I, that I tend to use or want to use every day but I think we have to understand this language of infidelity right because it's often used when talking about our relationship with God because that's the kind of relationship believers have with him if you look through the scriptures he is our creator and he made a covenant relationship with us but the problem is we often put a strain on that relationship See, we struggle to choose God and we choose worldly things and worldly desires, just like the people in this text. And the right word for that is what James is using. It is adultery. See, I don't know if you feel that tension tonight, but I do. And as we look at this text, James begins to flesh out as he begins, as he brings our attention to the concept of this thing called the world. And we see two things right away. Two questions that we have to ask. Two questions we ask from this first part of this text. What does James mean by the world? And what does it mean to have friendship with it? So, first, what is it, what does he mean by the world? See, we often think of the world as this place that's out there, that has this external reality this external impact on us like for some of us we can think of like going to the bar right that place out there that that has this this kind of atmosphere right that's the world and the people that visit that they're doing worldly things or we might be thinking about like a, a show one of the trashy dating shows I don't know take your pick bachelor I'm gonna choose that one right That's a worldly thing. People who watch that, they're doing worldly things, right? Depending on your conviction, right? These are the things that we look at and we think those are worldly. That is a worldly thing. But I think scripture shows us we should see the world in a different way. Where it's not this external thing out there, but it's this internal thing in here. See, I want to draw this line from where we're at in James right now, back to the book of Genesis, all the way to the beginning. If you remember in chapters one and two, God made creation and he called it good. And in chapter three, what does man do? Man sins. And do you remember the thing that tempted man in the garden? It was a serpent with his prideful and wicked spirit. And he offered power and pride and autonomy to man. You see, the thing the serpent did was appeal to man's worldly desire. And the thing that brought sin into the world was the fulfillment of that desire. An internal desire for pride. And this internal desire for self. An internal desire to do not what God wanted to do. This internal desire to not even depend on God. See, the sin that Adam and Eve fell into put self over God and it changed the world as they knew it. So as a result, this desire was unleashed to get whatever we want, to think whatever we want, to see whatever we want, regardless of if it's right or if it's wrong. This is the world and it's not something out there, but it's something internal. It's in you and it's in me. And if we're honest, y'all, like there's a consistent fight, right? We have to fight the urge to be friends with it. So if the world is this all-consuming internal reality, then what does it mean to have friendship with it? One theologian puts it this way. Friendship with the world means living in and agreeing with and loving the lust of the world and the driving spirit behind them. And what's this driving spirit? The driving spirit is the self, right? It's, it's, it's what's in you. If you know psychology, Sigmund Freud calls this thing the ego. The apostle Paul in the Romans calls this the flesh. But whatever you want to call it, it's the thing inside of you that makes you radically preserve and prioritize the you. And being friends with it means this. You love it and you protect it and you cherish it and you submit to it at all costs. See, this is what it means to be worldly. And this is what it means to be a friend of the world. And James says that this is what makes us an enemy of God. In other words, God looks at us who are passionately rebellious, who are wildly selfish and who are unbelievably prideful and says enemy. See, these are the fruits of worldliness, rebellion, selfishness, and pride. And the thing they all have in common is this worship of self. If you remember last week, Rudy kind of touched on this a little bit back then too when he was talking about this idea of false wisdom. And he said this, that false wisdom comes from the root of you having yourself at the center of your life. Y'all remember that? I love that. I don't love that. It's the wrong way to put it. But I agree with that, right? Like, it's, it's true. But there's another framework that James gives us that is powered by this same thing, and it's this idea of worldliness. You see, worldliness and false wisdom are essentially about pride, and pride rears its ugly head every time you make everything in your life about you. And I know some of us in this room have come in here guarded. Like you've thrown up walls to defend yourself because of the pain and the pressure that you felt from the outside. And your response is to wall everything out and mask selfishness in this idea that we want to call self-care. Now don't hear me wrong, right? I think self-care is important. I think we need some wisdom around it. But it is important, right? We do need to take our spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, and relational health seriously. But we need to be people of discernment and people of wisdom, lest we follow self-care into the pit of self-pride or self-pity and find ourselves more and more worldly and even more and more alone. So if worldliness is the sickness, then what's the cure? Here it is. It's godliness. If worldliness is life with us at the center, then godliness is life with God at the center. See, worldliness leads to pride, but godliness leads to humility. And here's what we need to know there is this consistent pull for the throne of your heart. There's pride and there's humility. And the world wants to draw you in by cultivating worldly desires that lead to pride and cynicism. But what does God want to do? He wants to draw you in by cultivating kingdom desires that lead to humility, truth, and grace. Listen to how First John colors this in for us. In chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. Take note, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And I love that he says this right here. Because, listen, we we could be reading the book of James in isolation, (laughs) And we would be like, dude, stop being such a (laughs) killjoy, right? You ain't a little grouch. But if we look at what James is saying in light of John, right? James isn't saying these things to be mean, but he's saying it because he wants us to live. John is saying that the world will literally die, but God will live forever. See, our desires that pursue the kingdom of the world will lead us to death, but our desires that pursue the kingdoms of God will lead us to life. The world and its desires will pass away. That's the warning. So we have a choice to make. Every day, in every decision, in every conversation, when we face conflict, we have a choice to make. Are we going to choose to be a friend of the world or are we going to choose to be a friend of God? See, maybe you hear that question and you're wrestling with anxiety because it brings you to realize like you've been operating in a worldly way. Like you've been being lured into these worldly things. Christian, if this is you, like, here's my encouragement for you. God has more power And he has more authority and he is more persistent than the world. He has literally overcome it. The scripture tells us, so no matter how far you ran to reach your last high or how low you climbed, to give into your strongest addiction, he is still pursuing you. And James really wants us to know this because it seems like his hearers didn't really believe it at the time. He's like, yo, what did you think? Look at verse 5. Do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Like there's two words in this, in this sentence that kind of jump off the page to me, jealously and dwell. Like when I see this word dwell here, like, like something happens in my soul. It looks like a normal word to you, right? But, but, but when you follow the text and you see this word dwell, this word dwell is the same word in the Old Testament for a tabernacle. And if you know the history of Israel at all, the history in the scriptures, God wanted to be with his people. And the way that God began to be with his people was to instruct his people on how to build a tabernacle. And he said, yo, I want to be among you. I want to be with you. I want to commune with you. I want to dwell with you. And he says, to do this, you have to build this tabernacle. And my spirit will dwell there with my people as you are a nomad family living across this land. And then a time later, he said, listen, I don't want you to be traveling anymore. I want you to have a place. I want you to be a people. I want you to have a land. He said, I want you to build me a temple. And in the center of that temple, place the holy of holies and my presence will indwell in that holy of holies to be among my people. And then we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes and Jesus, who takes on flesh, he is the embodiment put on flesh of God. He is the embodiment with the spirit, right? He is here and he is dwelling. He has another name, Emmanuel, God with us. This is who he is, dwelling with his people, And after he runs his course, he lives his life, he dies his death, he gets crucified, puts in the grave, he raises, and he ascends to the throne. He doesn't go without leaving us something. He leaves us the Holy Spirit. And so that every single believer who believes in Christ for their salvation, they now become the temple in which the Holy Spirit does what? Dwells. Sheesh. Don't that? Ah, come on now. It is a precious thing that God gives his spirit to dwell in his people. And he is right to be jealous over it. Even though the spirit of God is in us. He knows that our desires are still bent towards worldliness, and yet he is still jealous for us. If you're new to the Bible, this might be a new, weird word for you to use to describe God, but God also uses jealousy to describe himself. If you think back to Exodus 34, God says this to his people, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And in Deuteronomy 4, he says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Here's the way that one pastor puts this definition of jealousy. He says that God's jealousy is this passionate energy by which he is moved to make action against whatever and whoever stands in the way of enjoying what he loves and desires. And that thing that he loves and desires is namely us, even at the expense of how often we wrong him. See, his jealousy proves that there is no limit in his love for you, even to the point of extending something remarkable, an unmerited gift. His grace. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Yo, there's literally no better five word phrase in the Bible. This phrase, but he gives more grace, is literally the elevator music that plays in the background of the scriptures. And you can hardly turn a page in the Bible without seeing the patient grace of God. Why? Two reasons. Because it's who he is. And one, because we need it. It's who he is. God is a good gift giver. He's the giver of life. He's the giver of love. He's the giver of salvation. He's the giver of grace. And secondly, because we need it. Those of us who know in this room, you were saved by grace. It was not of your own doing, but not only are you saved by grace, but you are shaped by grace. And not only are you being shaped by grace, but you are empowered by grace. See, God gives grace because it's who he is, and he gives it because we need it. here's the catch. You can't recognize grace if you're prideful. Look at the second part of verse six. Yes, it says, but he gives more grace. Look at this. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, by definition, grace is opposed pride like grace is a gift and pride is the enemy of gifts like have you ever thought about it like this before like all of us have heard about the grace of God but most of us think about it being extended toward us but not so much about us receiving it like literally when was the last time you asked somebody like how are you receiving the grace of God today like, how have you been receiving the grace of God? It's a odd question. Because receiving God's grace implies that we're needy people. And for a people who are prone to pride, it's hard to admit that we have a need. See, the other week, I have a story. My in-laws came to watch my kids. <clears throat> my wife and I, we had to go out of town for a trip. <clears throat> in the house I live in. Uh, it has a lot of trees, right, ton of leaves. Last fall leaves fell, I did some raking, got them bad boys to the front of the street, Madison did their thing, shout out. But then a little later in the fall, more leaves began to fall, and I didn't quite get out there in time, right? You, you kinda know how that goes, right? Like, like the, the snow came and it was like, ah, it just snowed a little bit, I could probably get some more leaves, but I'm not going to, and then more snow came, and I was like, all right, I'm really out of commission now, you know? But my in-laws came to visit, and on the weekend that they were here, lo and behold, it was that weekend where it was like 80 degrees, so obviously it was a beautiful day. And my father-in-law, with his good, kind heart, he grabs the rake, he goes outside, we're not there, he rakes the leaves. I don't know anything of it. I come back home, and I come home to a yard free of leaves, beautiful, And the thing that should have welled up in me was gratitude. The thing that should have welled up in me was graciousness. But if I'm honest, you want to know the thing that welled up in me was? It was pride. Why did you touch my yard? Why did, you, why did you rake my leaves? Pride taught me not to be gracious. Pride taught me not to write a thank you text message. Pride said, oh, did you think I wasn't capable of getting my leaves raked? Pride taught me that. I couldn't even receive the good gift of a raked yard without pride in my reaction. And this often translates to how I view the gift of God's grace. And maybe this is your problem too. Right? If you're anything like me, maybe you have a hard time receiving grace because you're so full of pride that the hint of help makes you feel insecure and weak. Like that's me. And I hate to admit that. Like I wish I could say I feel secure and I wish I could say I feel strong all the time. But most of the time, it's the Lord reminding me of my need for him and my weakness. And I find myself needing a reminder that the Apostle Paul needed in Romans when God said my grace is sufficient for you. You'll never believe God's grace is sufficient unless you believe you're sufficiently in need of God's grace. It's not that being humble earns his grace, but it's that being humble is the only way to receive his grace. And this is the paradox in the ways of Christ, right? This was hard for the, for, uh, so hard to understand for James's audience and it's hard for us to understand today but I think there's this message that exudes from Christ that is echoed here in this text. And it's this, the way up in the kingdom of God is down in the kingdom of the world. And Jesus had to remind his disciples of this. Do you remember if you look back to the gospels, Jesus had to tell this to his disciples, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. If you want to be great in the kingdom, then you have to serve. If you want to save your life, then lose it. If you want to live, you'll have to die. According to Jesus, in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. And I know it doesn't sound like it, but y'all, this is good news. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So how do we pursue godly humility instead of worldly pride? I think the next several verses give us a blueprint for just that, and so what I wanna do is look at the next several verses, verses seven through 12. And here's what I wanna do. I wanna give us six ways that James says we can pursue godly humility. The first one is this, submit yourselves therefore to God. I want you to underline that word, submit. This is a supercharged word in our culture, and I get that. We live in a world, in a fallen world, and we always have where people misuse and abuse their authority. But let me remind you that you don't have to have that concern about God. God is a good God. He's worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your surrender. He is worthy of you submitting to him. And we should submit to God. We should submit because he created us. We should submit because his rule is good for us. We should submit because it's necessary for salvation. And we should submit because it's the only way to have peace with God. Second one is this. We should resist the devil and we should draw near to God. When we resist the devil, he will flee from us. When we stand against the devil in his deception and his intimidation, he can't stay there. And when we draw near to God, when we draw into proximity with God, God promises to draw into proximity to us. The third one is this. We have to clean our hands and we have to desire purified hearts and we have to desire a renewed mind. You have to be convinced of your sin. You have to want to be clean of that. You have to desire a pure heart and a pure mind that is aligned with God's. And when you have a mind that's aligned with God's, you begin to desire the things that God desires. You begin to look at life and you say, things are good that God calls good. And you begin to say, things are evil that God calls evil. Fourth, James says, be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You have to let your conviction of your sin turn to sorrow over your sin as you desire the cleansing from the cross. Fifth, to humble yourselves before the Lord. You have to humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is a promise from God, but this is also an example from God because it was Jesus who modeled this very thing first. He modeled humility for us as he condescended to earth and he took on flesh. And Philippians 2 tells us that he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the form of man, even to the form of a servant. And he gave up his life as he hung on the cross and bled for our sins that he might redeem some. He humbled himself and let God exalt him. See, Jesus showed us that the way up in the kingdom of God is down in the kingdom of the world by example. And lastly, sixth, we seek humility by not speaking evil against one another. Let's look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you are a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Y'all, there's a lot I can say right here. But here's what I think James basically wants us to know. That speaking evil against others is like being a judge of others. But it's clear in the text that we are not the judge. There is a lawgiver and there is a judge, and his name is Jesus, and he became humble so he didn't have to destroy you. So, why would you want to destroy someone else? Do you see the importance of humility? See, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble and the way up in the kingdom of God is down in the kingdom of the world. I'm about to close. Lucas, you can make your way up. And as we're closing, I have one final question for us. Where are you at? When you think about humbling yourself before God, when you think about what James lays before us, where do you find yourself? Are you submitted to God? Like, do you see God as king? Do you see God as Lord? Do you see him as ruler over your life? Do you rightly submit to him? Do you resist the devil? And do you draw near to God? Do you resist the deception and the misinformation that comes from the evil one? Or do you draw near to God, the holy one, through Bible reading and prayer, through worship and praise, through seeking wisdom, through communion with God? Do you flee from the devil and do you run towards God? Do you confess and repent? Do you confess and repent? the closest people around you who are doing life with you and walking with you, do they know what you're dealing with? Can they aid you on your walk? Listen, not everybody has to know everything, but somebody should know something. Do you mourn over your sin? Do you hate it? Do you wish it was far from you? Or do you have it beside you, thinking you have it under control? Do you give it a reason to grab a foothold in your life? Are you humble before the Lord? Do you have a healthy fear and a trembling before your jealous God? Do you speak well of others? Do you hold your tongue from speaking evil against another? Do you guard your mind from pride and comparison? See, I couldn't help but think about this list and take serious this call of Christ for followers to be humble. But I was also reminded of this truth that our walk with Christ isn't primarily about us being humble for Him, but believing and receiving that He became humble for us. See, if you're not a Christian in this room tonight, this is the first thing that you need to know. Jesus submitted Himself to the Father and the world, even to the point of death for you. He resisted the devil and drew near to God as he was tempted in the wilderness. He didn't have any sin to confess and repent of and so he took on yours so that you didn't have to. And he mourned over the effects of sin even though he had authority over it. And when he had every right to call you enemy, to call you traitor, to call you deceiver, to call you unworthy, he chose to call you friend. He chose to call you loved. And he can save you. He took the low road so you could take the high one and have relationship with him. We're going to enter into a moment of prayer reflection. You can close your eyes and bow your heads where you are. See, I don't know where everybody is in this room. But I do know this, that every single heart in this place has a bent towards worldliness. So, Heavenly Father, I ask that your spirit come on this place. And would you reveal to us, would you open our eyes, would you, would you let us know where we are choosing worldliness over godliness? Will you show us where we have removed you from the throne and placed ourselves on the throne of our hearts? Would you show us where in our lives, we are centering ourselves and decentralizing you? Would you show us this? Maybe as you sit there and think, this is a time where you reflect on your thoughts, you have a moment to sit there silently with God and take that to him. Or maybe this is a time where you choose to be bold and you take that to someone who loves you and you receive the grace of God in a unique way where brother can love brother, where sister can love sister and where you can walk in the light where you can receive freedom from walking in worldliness. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. Father, without you, nothing else matters. I'm so grateful for what you've done. I'm so grateful for your son. I'm grateful for his work on the cross. I'm grateful that he chose salvation. He didn't have to do it. He was already in paradise. He didn't have to come here and yet he chose to anyway. He humbled himself for our sake so that we can receive who he is, righteousness. Father, thank you. Would you humble us? Would you allow us to receive your grace so that we can also receive the same thing? Father, it's in the name that we pray. We know that you can do it. Amen.